Yo, what up? What up, what up, what up? This is you, Levine. Gule Wei, Orion de Peligrosa. T-Double. The mighty DJ Mel. This is Ginger Lee. Zilli. Protégé. Yo, 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 everybody, it's Toddy B. This is your favorite giant China man, CK. DJ K. Cali, you rocking with the feedback. The feedback. The feedback. The feedback. The feedback. You are listening to the Feedback Podcast. With my homie back. Welcome to the Feedback Podcast, everybody. My name is Back. Miko in the house. Hello, world. We got Will in the house, Will Bridges, Zach Ernst. From, we're live here at Antones. Thank you so much for having us, by the way. Uh, before we get started, quick shout out to Hurt Presents. Uh, make sure you go to empireatx.com for the dope lineup. They got the Ohio players, the village people, believe the it or village not. village people. <laughs> All of them, I hear. Yeah, and Rebirth Brass alive. Band. So uh, go to empireatx.com and use promo code FDBK for 10% off your tickets. That works not only for shows, but for events like Body Rock. Peligrosa. Yep, all those. Always good stuff. Thanks. Shout out to Herd. All right. We've got to jump right into it because we're, uh, it's a pleasure to be here to talk to you guys. And at this iconic venue, the home of the blues, Antones, thank you so much for, for being on. Yeah. So I'd like to jump right into it. What was your – I want to talk to Zach first because his history and his – uh, story as a musician. How did you? What was? What's your background in music? Did you grow up with the, the dad with a record collection? What was it? Uh, I started playing guitar when I was 12, um, mostly because I wasn't athletic and, uh, <laughs> you know, I I saw it as a way to meet girls. Really, just couldn't play sports. I realized that about that time and just. You know, saw someone at a party with a guitar and stuff, and said, "Like, oh, that's and, cool. And, I want to yeah, do that." No, no, no. And girls were around that guy. Yeah, exactly. yeah like, I want to be. I want to exactly be that dude. Right. And so I started taking lessons and things like that. And um, you know, my parents were always real supportive, and I'd go see concerts with them, like go see Neil Young with my dad, go see McCartney oh, wow. with my mom, wow. like all those things when I was real young. You know, so I was into all that stuff. And then I'm, I'm sure that my introduction to Antones like a lot of people was through Stevie Ray Vaughan and right. the Fabulous Thunderbirds and things like that and my dad had all those records you know and on into Storyville and Archangels and all that stuff he's like a, into roots music and blues music stuff like that so I grew up listening to my dad's CD collection at that time and and uh, hearing all this stuff and uh, so as I got into high school got a little bit more refined into the stuff that I uh, was into and that I liked and things like that and um, first came to Antones in 2002 mm-hmm. to see Double Trouble. They had sort of done this comeback record um, with a bunch of special guests on it and things like that. So they played on Lavaca uh, in 2002 when that record came out and mm-hmm. it was Tommy, Shannon and Chris Layton and uh, Reese Winans I think was on the gig and Mike Keller who plays here all the time was playing guitar with them and um, that was my first time and I remember, I might be making this up, but I feel like I remember seeing Ilsa there and going to the merch stand and getting mm-hmm. the Antones t-shirt and all this same Wait, stuff. Wait, so you're, you're originally from Austin? No, no, sorry. I'm from College Station, ah. uh, but my uncle lives here. Uh, both my mom and my uncle went to the University of Texas. And, uh, Good choice. So I was in high yeah. school, 16, and came over and stayed at our uncle's house. That's kind of cool. Yeah, and then we all <laughs> And that was, you know, that was my junior year of high school and then kept finding more and more excuses to come over here for shows and things like that. So when did you permanently move? When did, when did you make that permanent move? Uh, when I graduated, I 
this was the only school I applied to and yeah. and I knew I wanted to come here and so um, half applied to the school half applied to the city that's right yeah, <laughs> yeah totally so um, so yeah I, I knew you know and, and the music scene and going to shows and things was definitely a big part of that decision and wanting to be a guitar player and all that stuff but you know what kind of genre you wanted to play or uh, were you all over the place at the time I was pretty all over the place but um, you know as I got into high school I started getting meters records and James Brown records and uh, wow there's mm. a reference that you know be stuff that was a little bit cooler I hadn't kind of cleaned out all the other stuff out of my collection yet really but uh -huh. I was I kind of knew what I liked and and um, was getting a little bit more into the history of things um, when I moved here. I mean, and, and Will's similar story with your dad, right? As far as the the record and influence taking you to shows. Yeah, my dad uh, was also born and raised in Austin, and so you know. I mean, Austin was a much different town then, but mm -hmm. music has always been a part of the culture. And um, he got real into the blues in college, used to go to the old Antones uh, on Guadalupe, mm -hmm. used to go to uh, Soap Creek and a place called Jake's, and kind of ran with some of those guys, had buddies from college that were, you know, bigger in the scene. My dad was, uh, his whole career was in medicine. He was a mm. surgeon, mm -hmm. so he didn't get to go out as much as he probably liked. <laughs> He's retired now and actually is back to full-time uh, bluesman, uh, playing blues harmonica, you know, once a week. With nice. So he performs. He actually plays. Uh, yeah, he's got so he was always playing for fun and always playing at the house. And so I was yeah. exposed to it at a young age because of that. Playing records, um, you know, old Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Bob mm -hmm. Dylan, mm -hmm. Jimmy Reed, lots of Jimmy Reed. Um, and my sister, who's eight years older than me, she is a really talented musician, pianist and singer. And so I was the youngest of the family, so it was kind of just natural to me to uh, I, you know I dabbled in piano lessons when I was like five and didn't really like that and then and then got into the drums and then nobody else liked that <laughs> uh, did you have a jump kid at home did you have a jump kid at home uh, yeah but that, I, that didn't last at this long? age it was like the not like the full-size kit you right know, so which just those, things sound, things? those things sound even worse it just, <laughs> I mean Pots and pans sound better than those little, <laughs> like, you know, mid-sized kits. But uh, so finally, I succumbed to the what my dad was doing primarily at the time, which was just playing guitar. And, uh, yeah, I grew up playing on his uh, Gibson Hummingbird, fell in mm -hmm. love with that Gibson Rosewood neck. Zach's more of a Fender guy. <laughs> were, you, were you ever in a band? Uh, yeah, I did. I grew up playing in little bands, little garage bands. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, and um, how did the, the, the booking experience come around? Because, I mean, it's, it's one thing to, you know, be part of a band and learn how to play and then be like, okay, now we got to play shows. So we got to go around and, you know, and, and get gigs. So how did well, that come about? For, for me, it was easy. I was uh, exposed to people that were way better than myself. Yeah. And I had to make a sort of game time decision. I was like, okay, I either got to compete against that guy or I can like kind of shift my role in the village and and be a part of his team or you know support mm -hmm. that person. So I, that's when I got 
started getting into audio engineering and recording and then later booking promoting um and all that what about you zach you mean booking uh, my own bands or being yeah just the booking experience alone i mean now i mean um, you book for paramount and you book here at antones yep. And just that that process. I'm always curious about what it's like, like your, the first time when you're making like, that uh, jump. Making that jump. Yeah. Like I'm going to be not only I'm a musician, but there's yep. the business side to the whole industry that I need to learn and make sure that yeah we we, yep. we, we get paid hopefully and we can move on at a, as a musicians. Yeah, um, my first experience with anything in the music business um, was being on the. Uh, music and entertainment committee at the University of Texas, which mm. put oh, on wow. concerts and stuff. So yeah. I joined that my freshman year. And, um, you know, you go to this committee and you'd have a budget that you could spend yep. to put on, spend a lot of it on 40 Acres Fest, mm -hmm. you know, spend it on various shows throughout the year that were all free for students and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So um, at, that was my first experience, you know, which was with a really large budget um, and booking uh, Twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollar acts playing wow. shows for uh, students, and you know now that I know the world better, the wor music booking world better, and things, it's like colleges, college gigs are just the easiest for artists <laughs> and for agents because they got a lot of money, they have no idea what they're doing, what they're doing, and you know we, we were eighteen, nineteen, uh, and it was a really cool kind of first. Uh, introduction to, mm -hmm. to the business and then it's almost it wasn't the real world so it may have spoiled you a bit yeah oh yeah sure yeah. <laughs> but um you know what one of the shows that i booked that kind of got me into the next phase of things was i booked um little richard to play at the oh wow capital uh wow. not the capital at the tower uh in 2007 Ooh. and so um that was my sophomore year i guess junior <laughs> year dating I yourself remember. But um, so it wait, was I'm older than you. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> but I. Uh, so that was something that kind of got me. Uh, I booked an artist to open that show, Black Joe Lewis. And oh, so that's Black Joe Lewis, love him. And then wound up playing with him for five years after that. And then it was also in that experience that I first met Eve Monse, who mm -hmm. plays here all the time, because I took like Little Richard posters over to. Antone's record shop to uh, hang them and stuff and she's like wait Little Richard's playing here I was like yeah it's a free show down the block and free show Little Richard's <laughs> right out <laughs> today yeah <laughs> and so it was uh, it was crazy you know but that was all you know going on um, back in school so. so you were the lead guitarist of uh, Black Joe Lewis and the Honey Bear rhythm I'd call myself the rhythm guitar guitar player not lead no, I mean Joe was Joe was lead. lead. Yeah, right. but I was my hero. You know, was Steve Cropper and stuff like that, and the meters and things. Yeah, being in the rhythm section was sort of what I aspired to. I uh -huh. mean, in my in the liner notes or the credits of those records, I credited myself as rhythm guitar player. Just kind of the trip I was on at the time. At the time, you have an interesting experience in that you you started with music and as a as a performing musician, and then went into booking in yep. college, and then went back to music. And yep. then now you're back into booking. Was there overlap between it during that time? Were uh, you playing while you were at UT? Were you not really? No, yeah. I wasn't playing. So it's really all. one or the I, other. I never really any point had a band before, uh, before the Joe, Joe experience. So I played just for myself and um, for the girls. 
for the yeah. girls going on tour. Come yeah. on. Well, that all kind of happened later, but I, I didn't have any bands really in high school or anything like that. I right. just kind of okay. was doing, going to lessons, and it was like my favorite hour of the week to do that. And and I, but I didn't really play on stage and wasn't really um, into that yet. So, but, uh, you know, that was just kind of a hobby, and then um, everything else sort of came later. But yeah, you're right. I have volleyed back and forth back between and forth. those things. One more personal question I have. Did yep. you did you help book Common for UT? I did, yeah. Oh, I was at yep. that. Another free show at UT I yep. was at. Yeah, that was the year <laughs> Again, try that to, today. That was 2006. That was the year prior to. Your uh, freshman year, if you will. No, that would have been my sophomore year. Oh, that's your sophomore year. Little Richard was your junior, junior year. But I, I booked, um, I've always had a thing for putting together good pairings or good bills or, right. you know, the perfect opener for the headliner is something I still. Mm-hmm aspire to and I'm always driven by and so it, for that common show we had Brownout open mm-hmm. for him yep. which Brownout that. was sort of a new thing at the time and that was my first time meeting Adrian Casada and stuff was way back then when I was 19 and, <laughs> and, uh, and then so putting you know Black Joe Lewis and this great rockabilly band the Jungle Rockers on before mm-hmm. Little Richard it was all part of this right just good flow this thing yeah so I want to move on to your to Antone. So you said your dad used to take you to uh, Antone's back when he was on Guadeloupe. Did you meet him at the time? You knew who he was, and you kind of kept up with him? Like, what was your connection to him? Uh, Clifford? Yeah. I did get to meet Clifford, and I met him a bunch of times. Um, but I sort of regret to say that I never really knew him as an adult, like an adult to an adult. Uh-huh. I was always very much a kid coming in there and uh, because of some of my dad's friends that knew him and stuff, you know, I would get introduced and it was I just remember thinking like, oh wow, like that's you know, the coolest he's dude. The club owner. He <laughs> yeah. owns the joint. But you and were known he, as such and such a son. Yeah, or yeah. such and such as friend's son. son or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um but he gave me a poster one time. I, I think he gave me a couple posters that I have to this day because, you know, he loved kids and loved getting kids excited about music, especially mm-hmm. roots music and the blues. And, um, yeah, I, I wish that I would have had, um, you know, gotten to know him a little bit more. My sister uh, got to know him. And, you know, one of the things that people, musicians in particular, always say about Cliff is that, he, if he liked you and um, he thought you were good, had some talent, he would really, like, fill up your confidence, you know, and just mm-hmm. make you feel like you were a superstar. And so my sister, who was a singer at the time and was probably, like, I mean, this was probably when she was 19 or something, and she was uh, kind of probably acting, like, a little older than she really was at the time, you know. <laughs> and, and next thing she knows... She said that she was basically Clifford's date to the Four Seasons bar. He said, well, come with me. We're going to the Four Seasons bar. (laughs) (laughs) And and so next thing she knows, she's at the Four Seasons bar with all these people, and he's introducing to her, like, hey, this is Caroline. She's – you got to hear her sing. We're going to get her a record deal. (laughs) (laughs) She's going to the top and all this stuff. So She's on cloud nine. He he had – yeah. And he had those types of relationships with a lot of people, and that really inspired folks because – you know, not not all of those people went on to have careers, but a lot of them did. Right. Yeah. So your story, how you met, I mean, you were taking that class at UT because he was involved, you know, teaching. Yeah. Uh, so Blues According to Cliff, I think it was called. Yeah, something like so that. I knew, 
you know, I, I had been to Antone's in high school, and I, being from 90 miles away, I knew about as much about it as um, you would think. I, I knew who Clifford Antone was. I knew what Antone's was. Mm-hmm. And I knew the connection to to some of the music that I'd grown up with, but um, enough so that I knew that was the coolest elective that you could get into. <laughs> and it, it was a, um, God, I don't remember what school it was in, but it wasn't my major. So I had to do the waitlist thing, or mm-hmm. I can't even remember the system anymore, but I remember desperately wanting to get in that class just because I thought it'd be cool and, and trying to, you know, get in the, whatever the portal was with UT back then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, was so happy when I got it, you know, I remember seeing it on my screen, like the blues according to Clifford Anton. I mean, nice. it's like the greatest. Like all those refreshies paid yeah. off. Yeah, it's like the greatest. <laughs> We've all been there. The coolest name for a class ever. I mean, it's awesome. So I got it and that was my um, second semester of my first first year. Um, oh, that's pretty good. And yeah. then you were booking after that, so that's a good follow. Yeah, so I met him in January of 2005 and he passed away in June of, uh, May of 2006 2006, around that time and so um, you know I like a lot of teenagers music fans and stuff you have kind of cool band t-shirts and stuff so I remember I had like an Albert King t-shirt and Mm -hmm. that was sort of my coy way of like introducing myself I wasn't going to go up and talk to him because I was pretty shy and but I, uh, in that way, but I have like my Albert King t-shirt on it's and like, just be sitting kind of in the second row just, or something. Just kind of like, like throw your arm back. Yeah, yeah, right? no. <laughs> and so he'd be like, hey man, cool, you know, oh, cool t-shirt, stuff like that. And so that was sort of, because he was, he was an imposing figure. I mean, it was very warm, but, you know, and he loved that class. He loved turning people on to all his favorite music and things like that, but, um, I don't know if you're 18 and just kind of moved to Austin and stuff. You don't want to exactly um, go up there and start bugging him like everybody like, else. Like, hey, I know blues stuff. too. Like, yeah. like, do you know about this guy and that yeah, guy and that guy? You're like, yeah, they're my friends. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I, I knew better than to do that, and I really knew better than to tell him that I played guitar because the whole time that we were friends, he never knew that I played because oh. I would go. You know, I, I met him probably three, four weeks into the class, kind of go up to him after and say, hey, I'm – you know, want to go see some shows at the club, or I see you've got, you know, Blue Monday, I really want to go. And he said, gave me his card with his cell phone number on the back, and it's like, wow. call me anytime you want to go. And uh, I called him, and, and he picked up, and he said, yeah, I'll be there. And like, I, got huh. on, I got on the E-bus yep. back then to go. <laughs> and, E-bus uh, for everyone goes from UT to downtown Austin yeah. for free for students. From, yeah, so Jester to uh, Fifth and Lavaca and went, and sure enough, he was there, and and uh, I felt like I could get closer to him or gain more um, knowledge and things. Because when we would go on Blue Mondays, like there would be kids with their parents with Stratocasters every wow. week lining up wanting wow. to sit in. I mean, huh. and he hated that. Yeah. Like, really? He hated it. Why? Well, it, it was his stage and it was a place that you had to earn the right to be. Mm-hmm. There was never really an open blues jam at Antone's. Right. It's sort of like you've got to come be a part of the scene. You've got to be friends with people. You've got to hang out every night. You got to own your ranks. And, and then even back in the day, you've got to sit there with the guitar on the side a hundred times before maybe at 145 he'll say, oh, get up and play. And there's no one, you know, you're playing for the guy <laughs> sweeping up or stuff. So now that I know the mythology of the club a little better, 
it's reaffirmed that my instincts were right to just never. I mean, I feel like he would have put a guard up and right. Yeah. And you know, just at the time being real hungry to learn this stuff and also in the era of rampant file sharing on campus, I can <laughs> look at the syllabus and say, oh, next week is Stacks Records. What does that mean? And then get it all mm. and then kind of know what was going on. And that's what I did week to week was just get 20, 30 albums. I mean, still most of my record collection, a lot of which makes the house music down there, is stuff that I downloaded From illegally at UT when I was there? in this class. <laughs> I didn't really realize. Was, was he, was he a, a purist in the sense that he'd be like, oh, well, this is blues and this is oh, not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And was he, he said there have never been any good artists since Al Green. Al Green was the last. Really? Wow. Album. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's a big statement to make. But was he, um, did he come to you and say, hey, check out these records. Oh, check out this record. Yeah, he would. Yeah, he, I would talk to him about something and then he'd say, uh, hey, uh, there's something in my car that you would like. Follow me out to my car. And he'd have this big kind of suburban or expedition or something down there, like illegally parked in front of the, <laughs> somehow just parked on 21st Street and then hand me like Little Son Jackson, Frankie Lee Sims, like these crazy low down things and say, just, you know, bring it back whenever. Wow, that's, and, that's uh, amazing. And, you know, unprompted, uh, you know, he just, he probably would have 50 CDs in his car, and if it would be his dream that all the students would, uh, you know, follow him like the Pied Piper to his car, and he could give one. Right. Yeah. A, uh, Spread the awareness of what he Yeah, loves. and give someone a Fats Domino record, someone a Chuck Berry record, someone a uh, Otis Rush record. I mean, that's why he taught the class. That's why. That was his whole mission, and I mean, uh, he, that was everything. When, when I was watching a little bit of that documentary uh, online, and when he says, you know, the blues... I didn't choose the blues. The blues just chose me. And the way he talks about it, like you really get to hear someone talk that passionate about something, especially music. And was he ever a musician? Did he ever play anything? Or yeah, he's a bass player. Oh, well, there you go. Mm. Uh, I don't think he had much confidence in his playing. He'd sort of, if there was no other bass player there, he would. There's some photos of him playing with various greats, but at the time when I took the class, he and Pine Top were pay playing as a duo at the Broken Spoke. So mm -hmm. Alvin Crow was playing once a week at the Broken Spoke. And then during the set break, Pine Top would play piano and Cliff would play bass mm -hmm. and Pine Top would sell CDs and they did that every week. Huh, did not know that. How, how did he build all these relationships? I mean, he's from Texas, the Texas-Louisiana border, and then he loved Chicago blues. And bringing all these artists here, was he traveling a lot or what was... How was he building all these relationships with artists to be able to be like, hey, B.B. King is coming, Albert King is coming, or Pine Top is coming? Will, you want to take that? Or? I'll take a stab at the first part <laughs> of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back to what you said about his quote saying he didn't choose the blues, blues chose him. When he says that in the documentary, which anybody interested in the history of Antone should definitely check out mm -hmm. the documentary uh, Antone's Home of the Blues is what it's called. It came out in 2004. We sell it in the gift shop. So. We do sell uh, it in our gift shop. shop. Um, you can actually get it on Apple TV as well um, or iTunes or whatever, but it is without a doubt the most comprehensive uh, collection of just, you know, Antone's history. And, I mean, it takes two or three sittings to really absorb it because it's just so chock full of content. It's incredible that they were filming at the time. It's incredible that they made the film before he passed because right. they mm -hmm. didn't 
finish it, you know, until sh two years before. Um, it's just so that's a must see. For and anybody it was kind of before this rampant music documentary. Now, like every unknown session player, every club, there's so many music documentaries right. come out every other month. But it was like 2000. Yeah, before it, it was cool. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> but when he says that, when he says, "I didn't choose blues." Blues chose me. It wasn't like some little like catchphrase of his. I mean, he right. says it with this earnest bewilderment of kind of like, like he doesn't know me? how that he doesn't know how he, he end up here. Why it happened? It just happened. Um, we've learned a little bit more about the history of that um, since we've gotten involved because hmm. uh, we've really gotten to know Susan really well. I mean, mm -hmm. she's yeah. like family to us now. Um, talk to her just about every day. Uh, if it's not something about the club, it's about the Clifford Antone Foundation or Help Clifford Help Kids, some of the philanthropic mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. she does. But um, we've, by getting to know her, we've gotten to understand their upbringing. You know, they were from Port Arthur. Mm -hmm. um, their parents were Lebanese immigrants, basically, so they weren't blues buffs. Right. Uh, so where the heck did they learn about the blues? Well, their parents ran a shop called Antone's Imports, and Anton, Anton's Imports, one of the employees was named Big Henry. And Big Henry is apparently like the progenitor to like how, how Clifford got into the blues. Hmm. And ever since he was a little kid, he'd be playing, Big Henry would be in there playing 45s, playing records. And kind of in the same way that Clifford would educate people and, and inspire them and say, loan them records and stuff. Yeah. You know, Big Henry uh, did that I think. Clifford saw this big magnetic guy having fun playing music, and he was curious, and so uh, they became close friends. Then as when Clifford got older, uh, he would take him, Big Henry would take him around to the blues clubs and kind of introduced him to that community in Port Arthur and everything. So that was, we kind of stumbled upon that bit of history after we had opened the club because we were trying to find out a name to call the record shop downstairs, uh -huh. and we were asking Susan, hey, is there any you know historical nugget that hasn't been used yet that we haven't talked about yet and she looked at us like you think i've been just holding on to something I think, <laughs> I, I, I think it's pretty much all been covered i don't you know uh so we were really racking our brains and trying to think of something clever that wasn't too cute whatever and susan called us one day actually called zach and said well, she called me too, but I just remember her. She, she was so excited. She was saying, oh, my gosh, I woke up, and Cliff must have sent this to me because I hadn't <laughs> thought about this in forever. But she said, Big Henry, that's, you know, where it all started. Big Henry, that's worked in my parents' shop. That's who turned Clifford onto the blues. She said, if it wasn't for Big Henry, there would be no Antones. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, of course, <laughs> there was going to be no better idea than that, so we jumped on it. And have learned more about Cliff, uh, Big Henry. There's a picture of Henry and Cliff downstairs in the mm -hmm. shop. And another thing that Susan said that I thought was so cool and special is that when he, when Cliff opened Antone's in the original in 1975, you know, he was so proud and had his parents in from Port Arthur. And the only person that he was just as proud to show the club off to was Big Henry. It was like the, it was like his third parent being there. Mm -hmm. um, Big Henry's not with us anymore, but uh, that was a really cool thing to learn about. Um, another thing that's always stuck out to me, and this also is uh, quoted in the DVD, but, you know, uh, well, being from Port Arthur, uh, you know, you're, you're right there, as you said, like mm -hmm. on the Gulf Coast in between 
uh, Lafayette and or you know you're as close to Lafayette and New Orleans as you are Houston and some of these right, other right, places right, right? Yeah. I'm bad at geography but something like that <laughs> um, so uh, the music from Louisiana is just as much the blues from that perspective as is what we think of as Texas blues electric mm-hmm. blues Chicago Houston uh, blues so that is uh, when people think of intones, they think of the blues, but sometimes they forget to think about Zydeco mm-hmm. and brass bands. And, you know, we do a lot of those shows here, right. obviously. But that's because that all came from Clifford. He he was quoted as saying the inspira- his inspiration for starting the club mm-hmm. was going to New Orleans for the first time as a young person and just being just blown away by just the energy and wanting to create a spot, you know, uh, I guess you know when he when he ended up in Austin, I wanted to create a spot that could house that and be a home for that. Um, when Clifford started the the first club in '75, July 15th, the original opening date, he didn't have a blues band mm-hmm. play it. He had uh, Clifton Chenier, Zydeco King of New Orleans, play it. Um, so again, people forget or a lot of times don't know about that connection to Louisiana and New Orleans and everything. We had CJ Chenier, mm-hmm. uh, Clifton's son, uh, play our opening as a homage to that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I've kind of gotten a little. That's off, fine. Story is great, man. This is all good history in your mouth. I love it. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I'll say one more thing and then I'm going to kick, kick it off to Zach. Because, so when it came to building that network, so that's kind of the foundation, you know, but when it came to building that network mm-hmm. and, here's Zach may have correct me on this I'm not but I don't think that he had that much of a network but nobody there wasn't that many people into the blues at that time and there certainly wasn't anybody in Texas or let alone Austin Texas booking those bands and actually paying those bands Mm -hmm. because the blues at that time was it was down and out man I mean other than a few kind of crossover guys that were the big names nobody really could you know even like get gigs so word got out quickly that hey there's this guy in austin texas no social media and, none of that stuff. and people, and people thought <laughs> he was, regional people thought he was kind of crazy they're like this young guy he started this club and he is a fanatic about the blues and he knows about all of us he knows all of our music <laughs> he knows all of our history and all of our catalog he would track these folks down um but when the floodgates really opened, I think, is when those some of the first people he got uh, down from Chicago, yep. uh, like Sunnyland Sunny Slim, Slim, yeah, Sunnyland Slim, and who went back to Chicago and was like, "Hey, y'all got to get down to Austin and check out this guy Clifford." So because he knew the people who he knew all the players who were on the records too, and that was, you know, it wasn't a time where you credited all the. You know, on 45, there wasn't a place to list who played drums, who played guitar. Right, right. All that stuff, you know. Uh, famously, James Jamerson, the greatest electric bass player of all time, is named in the pier uh, anywhere on liner notes until 1972 and what's going on. And he had played every iconic Motown bass line before that. So for him to know right. <laughs> the bass player who played on the Muddy Waters records or, you know, even Sunnyland Slim cut a few things on his own, but, you know, was such a cult figure i mean would play clubs in chicago and really nowhere else i mean there was there wasn't much blues revivalism yet you know it was um long hair and blue jeans and playing maybe blues rock that is somehow so watered down version of 
Zeppelin or Mountain or <laughs> stuff like that, uh, Cream, all these, you know, it was all the psychedelic blues rock stuff, which um, I think turned some people on, certainly Zeppelin doing all these Willie Dixon songs. And yep. people, some people would be inclined to flip, follow that back. But, you know, the 70s wasn't a time for this music. And, you know, I, it's a little bit before the movie The Blues Brothers was made. But, you know, in that movie, they have Aretha Franklin and James, James Brown, Brown and, and John Lee Hooker and yeah. all these people. And, like, during the disco age, which was sort of kicking off a little bit after 1975, but you know, that was very passe. That was the music of 15 years ago. So mm -hmm. they were looking for anywhere to work. And then suddenly, you know, whether it's R&B and soul artists like that or um, blues artists who were never really known in the first place, to have a guy who will treat you like a king and pay you and he'd book them for five or six nights, hmm. you know, and they'd play over there at six and Brazos and then hang out and go fishing all day. And I mean, it must've been the greatest gig and it's not like it was packed every night uh -huh. by any means, but the, they could come by themselves. There were very, the other thing that was happening at the time was there were great young musicians in Austin, many of whom came down from Dallas, starting with like Denny Freeman and then the Vaughn brothers. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, the folks who became the Cobras and the Fabulous Thunderbirds and uh, all these backing bands like that. And some of the East Austin people who played on the East Austin scene, like uh, W.C. Clark Blues Review, or, you know, there were a lot of great musicians here where these artists could come down by themselves. So they didn't have to split the money eight ways. They could just come down by themselves. There'd be a great young band who knew all their stuff, who would play probably for nothing just for the opportunity to be with these guys. I mean, it's the dream gig. I can't imagine how great that would be at a time where even in your hometown or especially in your hometown you maybe make 50 bucks or something and, right and so that's what it's all about is the magic connection of these young largely white musicians um who are obsessed with the blues all meeting these folks who aren't they're not old yet they're yeah. maybe in their 40s maybe in their 50s but they've still got a lot of fire in them and they're down here to make some money and to you know play for young people and then the young people are excited to learn from their heroes and all of that coming together is still the magic of this place that uh, on a really good night we're able to get a little glimmer of that here you know that's what it that's wow. his whole that's the genius of Clifford was making a place where all those folks could come together and and, 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 and put the people together that has haven't necessarily played together before yep. or haven't played in a long time together is that something yep. that you guys, you know, try to do Absolutely. When, you, when you book and here? I'll let Zach talk about that, but I, I just want to – I was going to reiterate that before you even said it, that, I mean, first off, there was this magic to kind of the timing of it because I don't really know the origin of this, Zach, but there was a little bubbling blue scene in Texas out of Fort Worth and Dallas, um, and so that kind of fit perfectly into – and then Austin became this hotspot destination for musicians because of what was going on with like Willie and the Cosmic Cowboy kind of mm -hmm. thing. It was like this rebellious city where, especially for the arts and music, kind of anything goes. And it was where like the underdogs could kind of come and flourish. Mm -hmm. And you had this captive audience of UT folks. And it was just like perfect time in that regard. But then you had that kind of perfect... Uh, 
person to come in and play chemist. I like to think of it as like chemistry set because that's what Clifford would do. He would say, hmm, okay, I've, I know this person. What happens if I throw them on stage with this person? And it was like an experiment in real time. You know, that's one of the things that's great about the blues. The blues is such a simple genre mm-hmm. at its essence. It's kind of the mother tongue of the foundation a lot of funk of, and even hip hop. And so because it's simple, uh-huh. you know, you can, there's a lot of room for expression and, and improvis- improvisation and, and you can, you can have people kind of jam and get up and sit in and things. You can't do that with every genre because sometimes you got to know the song or you got to right, know right, the right. charts or you got to kind of rehearse or something. But, um, but so it was literally like, and to this day, we really try and honor this spirit. It was not, so it was not like a, a performance venue where, okay, these guys are just going to like, they're here to perform for you and run through these songs and you're going to clap in between songs. It was more like, hey, something's going to go on on stage and we're not necessarily sure what it's going to be. <laughs> and, and, uh, and y'all are just lucky to kind of be flies on the wall in here. You know, it was right, like, right. It, was, it, was, it was more about people just being in awe and anticipation of what was happening or what may happen or who might show up and that kind of, uh, it was just all this room for like uh, possibilities of what could happen. And then the last element of it that was so key is it often had this um, like generation gap thing between it too because it was the old guys mm-hmm. getting up there with the younger players and passing down that torch, hmm. you know. And they were so excited to do it because they were so excited to find a contingent of young folks that were into it and a place to do it. Uh-huh. And the young folks were so excited because they couldn't believe they were yeah. on stage the with these folks. And again, they couldn't tear, they, they didn't care if there was two people in the room because mm-hmm. th- what they were doing on stage just alone in itself was just like so magical. So, you know, Cliff really in that approach uh, not only revitalized the blues, uh, but passed the blues down to an o- a whole other genre and created like a culture and tradition of doing that mm-hmm. that, you know, now is at least two generations in and we hope to go through you know, that's four. something that's something that's important to us is like keeping that element of it alive. I th- I think, you know now it it is cool to be nostalgic for the 50s and 60s or everything sort of ha- is through this lens of throwback. Those are mm-hmm. retro something. There's always something. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and it it is good when Sharon Jones do, uh, Sharon Jones do, does what she did or Amy Winehouse or these things because mm-hmm. then people chase the, you know, like on hip hop chasing the samples back or like yep. mm-hmm. the vibe of this groove on this or that. If you take that and go find the source and stuff that will ultimately enrich your life you know it's yeah, yeah. it's a good thing but you know the couple things that i think about in terms of this place um is just like in 1975 that wasn't a thing i mean it's 20 years since elvis 10 years you know 12 years since the beatles whatever mm-hmm. being a throwback blues band in the 70s would was just weird i mean it was nuts <laughs> you know i mean it wasn't in vogue thing to do or you know the things that Clifford was doing and that um, Steve Dean was doing with his record shop selling blues records next door 
you know, these people were freaks. I mean, they were, it was, they didn't care if you weren't there. They knew they were the coolest people uh, in the room and they didn't care if you didn't come to their party because they had found this thing and they were gonna do it and they had a scene of people who liked to have a good time and who all were very talented. And it was, it wasn't a normal thing. You know, it wasn't uh, this retro thing. That wasn't what you wanted to do it back then, but what ended up growing out of that was, you know, it's impossible to, um, to imagine the sort of blues revival that started in the 80s, largely with the Thunderbirds and Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble, mm-hmm. um, sort of one of the first major movements of reviving a genre and making it really commercially successful again. It's impossible to imagine that happening and then that cycle of happening every once in a while, every 10, 20 years, without without this environment it, whether it was maybe if it didn't happen at Anton's it would have happened somewhere else but without that sort of alchemy it. being all put together it's you know and then here we are many years later um, you know proof that the formula works is the sort of stratospheric success of Gary Clark Jr. that started mm-hmm. right, right. side stage at Anton's I mean it how many clubs can lay claim to sort of creating that n- national international um, thing, not once, but twice. I mean, right, it's, yeah. it's pretty special, and, and it's, it's something to not take lightly. It's, it's, uh, and it comes down to these few people who are really driven and who really care about the really best shit, and then, <laughs> and then you either get on board or <laughs> you if don't. you don't, uh, we don't care. I mean, that, there's some people who are real stubborn and real hard-headed like that that can kind of you know, change everything. It's, pr- it's pretty special. I want to take a good break because we got to give a shout out to our second sponsor, uh, Slab Barbecue. Um, go to realdoughbarbecue.com for their menu. Two locations in Austin, 183 in Burnett next to Sherlock's, and at the Y in Oak Hill. Get yourself a notorious PIG or Dunk, which is like a pound of meat. All the meats they have and all the sauces they have. Wow. No sides. Uh, they do delivery pickup and catering also. Uh, treat yourself with some dough barbecue and mention the feedback at checkout for 10% off your meal. So you're, you're talking about... Um, I've had know, it before. It's good. It's really, really good. Ouch. Yep. Cosign. Yep. And he's a barbecue guy. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he knows. Um, so you're talking about you know, you know, bringing back that vibe and staying true to you know, what Anton started. You know, and like, like you said earlier, Anton moved like what? Six, this is the sixth edition of sixth Anton. Location. Sixth location. You know, from, uh, so was it Sixten Brazos to Anderson? Great Northern. I was going to say, can you do it without looking at the paper? Yeah, oh, hold yeah. on. <laughs> well, I move. I, I, will, I, will, I will. Hold on. So, uh, Sixten Brazos, Anderson Lane, uh, Guadeloupe, uh, then uh, Fifth and Lavaca, okay, then Riverside, <laughs> and now here. here. Yep. Well but, done. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, my, my, the first time I walked in was at, uh, the Lavaca one. Same that's here. the one my that most people know. Like our generation. Technically, the second know. one was on Great Northern Boulevard, but it was very near Anderson Lane. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Close enough. Close enough. Yeah, my first show as well was uh, Anton's over um, over on Fifth. It, and, it uh, was uh, there starting in '97. So yeah. for a lot of us, I think that's right. the yeah. generation. Unless you grew up here, that there's a lot of people who that was there. So bringing it back to bringing it back downtown, you know, from Riverside, it was like a two-year gap trying to figure out what was going to happen. What, what made you decide to 
to to uh, get involved with that? Get involved in general? Yeah, just bringing it back, taking on that project. Um, so I remember the day when it was announced, Kevin Curtin announced that at the Chronicle, uh, announced that it was going to be for sale. And myself and a lot of our little peer group of people that, you know, are in this world and uh, hold Antones as this kind of pinnacle of the Austin club scene, everything. We were all kind of scrambling to call like our mentors and folks and wondering who's going to do it. Like, because we thought one of the older guys would do it. Mm -hmm. um, we thought, you know, Steve Wertheimer from Continental and and C Boys, you know, maybe maybe he would take it on, or maybe Jimmy Vaughn or, or Jimmy's longtime manager, Corey Moore, who also does Austin Speed Shop. Never in a million years that we, you know, think <laughs> that we would, but we start calling around to some of these guys, and and uh, yeah, that we're sort of uh, shocked when they said, eh, we're too old to be messing with that, but you guys should do it, you know. Oh, their blessing, and you and, and we we'll, t we'll totally support you, and and. Uh, you know, I'll, I would be lying, though, if I didn't also say that there was also some caution, some words of caution, because, um, you know, Ant Antone's kind of out there on Riverside. It had, had kind of a hard run and kind of a slow decline. And so didn't it turn more into an event space than it, it just was more of a venue. That was the, yeah, the venue, venue. Yeah, venue. Yeah. Was, yeah, that was. Uh, well. With the only exception being Great Northern, actually, because Great Northern was actually the largest room. Oh, really? Um, in part, that was because they kind of knew that was going to be a temporary space. Mm -hmm. um, so they took on more square footage than they needed further away from downtown. They could kind of scale the size of it up and down with, like, pipe and drape and stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, but the Riverside location was the, the second largest and really... You know, uh, it was such a short stint at Great Northern that it was it was really the largest they had ever that anyone had ever uh, tried to like make the club capacity wise. Mm -hmm. They called it a 900 cap. You know, I don't. Um, but anyway, because um, uh, sorry, I want to get back to what I was right. Saying so people, about, you're you're yeah, okay, asking okay. around. So yeah. so the, the words of caution were just basically like. It had kind of had this slow demise over there, and so you don't just go pick that up lightly. Um, you know, I, I, one analogy I came up with one day, it was kind of like, you know, the kids start getting into grandpa's closet and kind of start messing with his things and tinkering, and it's like, y'all be careful with that stuff. You know, that's meaningful stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, the older to, generation yeah, was like, like, like you know, you? just you don't go – you know, just you got it. Just it was all about respect, respect. the history of it. Yeah, yeah. But what was kind of cool was I think when they saw us like genuinely getting interested for the right reasons and wanting to kind of carry on those traditions and carry on that culture and all that, then that concern uh, shifted to a lot of support and enthusiasm. It was kind of mm -hmm. like they were saying, "Wow, these kids! <laughs> they're at, there's these actually kids. some hope for these kids <laughs> yet." You know, there's actually some hope for these kids yet. They might they be get, all right. They get it. And uh, so anyway, that was really important. I mean, we needed the support and blessings of several key cultural stakeholders. Uh, Susan also being uh, one of those people, of course. Um, but 
then it wasn't that easy. You know, then some of us got involved and tried to kind of like get our hat in the ring in terms of, hey, we're interested. Da, da, da. Mm-hmm. Well, long story short, you know, it was um, uh, it wasn't that easy. There was some competition and and, you know, we ended up sort of stepping away from the negotiating table at one point saying like, yeah, I don't know if we can do that. You know, I guess maybe this is the one that got away or. Mm-hmm you hear the story like if something's meant to be you know it'll come back right. type of thing. yeah well sure enough you know the way it played out with some other another group uh ended up buying the name of the club and deciding that the riverside location was not the best spot for it which we all agreed with that mm-hmm. and then they had some trouble finding a new the new space had some trouble finding who's going to be like the operating partner and that group uh, basically sort of got truncated down to just one guy who's Spencer Wells, who's one of our partners now. Mm-hmm. And I got to know Spencer through his brother, Arnold Wells, who's a music photog here in Austin. And mm-hmm. uh, anyway, we got we got to talking and basically uh, it did kind of circle back. You know, those guys actually did a lot of good in um, like they, they moved the, the ball down the field, you know, got the rights, got it negotiated, kind of um, – got it kind of cleaned up mm-hmm. and then serendipitously ended up circling back with myself and, and some of my did partners. You, did you know Zach already? Or did you guys? Oh yeah. Yeah. Zach knew Zach and I knew each other from uh, mutual music friends and How did you guys from meet? Arlen studios. <laughs> yeah, that was the obvious question. <laughs> yeah. Zach had done some projects at Arlen studios. Um, but th- my but wife went to Austin high with all these people. I, I met a ton of these folks uh, through her, you know, she was there. Gary went to Austin High, even yeah. say uh, Will and stuff. So a lot of these, um, like Will in particular, I, I met mostly through my wife and then uh, making some records at his studio. So playing the guitar and getting the girl really opened up your career. Circle back real quick. So I was trying to give a more succinct kind of uh, overview of this, and it totally failed. So the bottom line is we felt – a tremendous amount of responsibility to not let Antones die on our watch, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or on our kind of our kind of turn of being adults. I mean, it was very much a coming of age project because three years ago or however long when we started this again, we were kind of thinking we're not worthy, you know, we're mm-hmm. well. I mean, we don't know how to do this stuff, and this is too important. But the the generation above us was kind of saying, "It's your turn." Hey, it's your turn. Yeah, and. Um, so we knew that that was a tremendous amount of responsibility to take on as well. I mean, the burden of, oh my gosh, like what if we screw it up? Like then that, then it's on our hands, you know? Right. So we put a lot of thought into, uh, what it needed to be in the, you know, when, when you take an old brand, uh, especially one that has so, that has touched so many people and have, there's so many, uh, there's so much well, history and way to it, and yeah. all these things. It's it's um, you know you 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 have to make a whole lot of people happy. Basically, it had Antones had five previous iterations before this one, so there was a lot of different folks that said, "Oh no, Antones didn't like this. It's like this," or "No, it's not. It's not like that at all. Mm-hmm. It's like this." Well, they were all right because they could have all right. gone to different venues, you know. Right. So we tried to exp- we tried to learn and soak up as much of the history as possible. You know, some of it we already had. Uh, Zach already had, of course. 
you know, the history of the blues and everything. But I mean, even just like the nuts and bolts, I started really learning about the locations of these places and why they made those decisions and how big the rooms were, how big the mm-hmm. stages were, how big the bars mm-hmm. were, how big the bathrooms were, all that stuff. A lot of homework. Uh, and we all agreed that it needed to come back downtown because that's yeah. where it started. Just a yeah, few blocks and, away from and it. And it's just, uh, th- this was also at a time where, you know, even three years ago, three and a half years ago, you know, there was a lot of talk in Austin about abandoning downtown with, uh, music, venues and the creative class and oh you can't doesn't work anymore we got to go east we got to go south right well i'm all for the expansion of uh those those scenes and and music venues and all that but um it's kind of common sense and it's also been proven by some of these uh studies that are done on the ebbs and flows of of uh downtown creative sectors and and downtown small businesses uh that if you lose your creative clustering in your in a downtown sector, mm-hmm. that's a really bad indicator. That's kind of the canary in the mine for your downtown. It's a catalyst for Well, not, not just that, but I mean the fact that he opened it, you know, in '75, he pretty much started the live Austin as a live music capital of the world. That's well, in a lot of ways, it certainly sort of uh, helped consummate that with Sixth Street because right. when he put when he brought Anton's 6th Street there was no 6th Street that was just like saying 3rd Street. Street or anything yeah. it right right it didn't mean anything um musically or or as a, a business district or anything like that so um but anyway needed to be downtown needed to be a club again which is a real term of endearment uh in Austin you know all venues uh, all clubs are venues but not all venues are clubs basically mm-hmm. you know a venue yeah. is a place that maybe it's not open all the time maybe it is but it's maybe it's events maybe it's you know shows whatever a club in austin at least means there's consistency to it you can go there consistently and see music it means that there's thought and integrity behind the curation of what's being presented so a lot of clubs are genre specific or you sort of at least can know the types of stuff you might see there because Mm -hmm. the person behind it, in this case, Zach, you know, the the people booking the bands are really trying to do something cool and not just trying to, you know, get cover bands or put anything up there just Mm -hmm. to like fill the place. You're really really trying to present um, something. And and then the third thing, of course, is being like an economic contributor uh, to to the – to the local music economy paying musicians like really kind of getting having the musicians back having the musicians backs and saying like no we're not going to do no cover or we're not gonna you know yeah we could make a little bit if we kind of just got musicians that didn't you know made the musicians kind of fight to just who was going to play for the least amount of money or something this happens in other markets right but uh, being a club in Austin, Texas means no, we're going to take care of the musicians first mm-hmm. because if the right musicians are in there, then the, the, the fans are going to follow, you know? Right, right. Um, that's, a, you know, building, literally building the club from the musician out, from the stage out, from the sound, from making them comfortable. Because if you make, if you can get really good musicians to like your club, everything else kind of falls into And that ties into the early conversation I was talking about. That's why Clifford built it in the first place and why it got so much yeah. uh, renown. Well, well w- w- one aspect S- that, that, sorry, yeah. Well, so um, 
I'm, I'm, I know I'm really belaboring this now, but we, <laughs> so those three things need to be downtown, mm-hmm. uh-huh. need to be a club again. Um, so then, so we, that basically meant a smaller room in this case. Um, we also liked the idea of having an events component if possible, mm-hmm. but that was kind of icing on the cake. So basically we just started looking for spaces. We started checking out every big rectangle, uh, <laughs> in, around downtown, as I call them, basically just looking for a big space. You know, ideally you don't have to rip out a kitchen or rip out offices. You're looking for something that's still kind of a shell because then the rents are going to be cheaper and all that. And that's not easy. There's not many of them left. So, um, it took, uh, the we were kind of doing that in parallel while some of the mechanics of actually even having the opportunity to take on Antones were still kind of playing out as well kind Mm -hmm. of on the hunch that like I said it might circle back Mm -hmm. um and we got really lucky with this space really really lucky I mean I swear this place kind of just fell from the sky because this block used to be so nondescript before the Weston Hotel was across the street right before the Weston Hotel was there and if I would have asked you Hey, you know where Eddie Visa is downtown, right? Yep. Oh, yeah, of course. What's just east of there? What's like a block or two east Paradox? of there? <laughs> <laughs> the fire station? Yeah. Paradox. Well, You're dating yourself now. So this building was kind of right under our nose, to be honest, because we were walking around. I don't remember what was here before. Uh, well, it had been some it, – it was maxi glass downstairs, which who had been there since the early 80s, mm-hmm. and it was action screen graphics upstairs, huh. who had been there since the early 90s. Never noticed. No. So, um, yeah, got really lucky with the space. And then the last thing I'll say about this iteration of Antones, and one thing that's different about it than all the previous versions, is the first five – there was never very much downtime at all. In fact, they would always time it to where, you know, maybe they were closed one, two nights, maybe, you know, but mm-hmm. they would have a farewell show at this place and then, you know, right away pick up at the other place. So there was a lot of continuity. They wanted to keep that continuity going, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. The The silver lining of losing that continuity and having two years of, of no Antones, which, by the way, the, the reason why uh, we uh, still – like our 42nd anniversary is coming up and we don't count the two years that it was closed in part because guess who was carrying the torch for us uh during that interim was Antone's record shop so mm-hmm. big uh shout out to Eve Monse and Mike Buck for having in stores and basically care- keeping that culture alive during the time when Antone's nightclub was still finding its new home they're, they're celebrating 30 years in August of the record shop. They oh. open in wow. 87, so even Mike are doing a bunch of promotions and things in August, and some of that will tie in here and stuff. Right. It's pretty amazing to just tell the time. time well, yep, go check them out. So I'm almost finished. <laughs> so, 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 so here's the last thing. So I have another we, question. So because of, because of that <laughs> continuity, you know, the, 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 the one downside of that is – I, th- I feel like they were probably always in such a they were always so focused on just looking forward and onward that they weren't able to really be nostalgic or really pay as much homage because they weren't wanting to pay homage to the past they were wanting to keep it going keeping the lights on keep right, it right, open right. next show got to get the new spot open you know it's kind of why you know uh well i won't go too far into this but some of the old folks that you would think have all the posters yeah say man you think i was collecting those things back then i was too busy getting the new posters up right. and i right. totally get that as a, a venue owner it's like 
when somebody rips the posters off the wall, you're like, oh, thanks. You know, you saved me some work because I'm just thinking about the next show, the next right. night, the next weekend. But anyway, so without having that downtime to for us to really do the research, really uh, look back, find the best little things of all the previous five locations that we could implement in this one, um, we wouldn't have it, it wouldn't have been able to, like I said, appease all those different generations, all those different perspectives of what Anton should be, could be, was, mm -hmm. all of that. Um, the what the way I s kind of just sum that up is you really can't have a rebirth without a death, yeah. you know? And prior sure. to that, Antones really had never died. So it did, sadly, but the positive of that is it gave us the time to actually make this one a true rebirth. Well, speaking of, speaking of rebirth, I think, you know, one thing that Cliff was, was very adamant about was like passing on to the next generation. Like we talked about having young artists come play with legends you know, bringing you guys on as next generation. And now that you have the opportunity to, you know, bring the brand back and, um, you know, revive, revive the venue, you're, you're, you're looking at modernizing a little bit and kind of uh, adapting Antones to today's world, not to the 70s. So maybe musically, you know, bringing on some a more diverse, um, more diverse music to play and not just blues, 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 blues. I mean, you got, you guys got, I mean, there's hip hop, there's, you know, there's funk. And it's, is that a, like a conscious effort that you guys made to, you know, bring in this back to saying, okay, we have an opportunity to bring a large audience and bring in a younger audience into Anton so they learn about the history and the venue itself. I uh, think for one, you know, there aren't enough uh, blues acts to play here every night, really. Right. But another one is just you've got to bring new blood in here you've got to bring young people in here you've got to keep the lights on you've got to sell drinks you know and so there's a ton of artists that you can sort of in different genres and things i mean in some ways the bread and butter of this place on the weekends on a good weekend um lately is like new orleans bands brass bands Mm -hmm. uh, funk bands from New Orleans and stuff because it's still um, very true to the sound and true to the stuff that Clifford liked and stuff but also it draws a very wide range uh, of ages of people of people who like to dance people like to party I mean that's what everyone loves about New Orleans and then when we get the brass bands in here and we get um, folks like that in here mm -hmm. I'm really pleased because you know they you, at, at the end of the day, it's a business, and you've got to mm -hmm. bring in new people. You've got right, to right, right. book audience uh, artists that have their fans who will come and who will support the bar and who will tip the bartenders, and and that's it. And so, I think when we first came back, obviously we leaned very heavily on the blues, and the Antone sound is the still hasn't changed in terms of our weekly programming in and out. Right. Um, but you know, on the weekends. Uh, we do different stuff. There are different promoters who put shows in here. Um, you know, I was thinking about this last night because I went and saw Wonder Woman at the mm -hmm. Draft House. And, you know, the Draft House is seen as a cool place for movies. You know, they bring the blockbusters, and when they get a chance of doing uh, any genre, any big movie, anything like that, mm -hmm. you can see it at the Draft House. But you know the people behind the scenes really care about movies because of 
you know, the stuff that plays pre-show, which right. is kind of like right, our right. music yeah, that yeah. you hear when you come in. Or that was showing up 30 minutes early. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, w th when they do Fantastic Fest or, right. you know, and so what I do is I look at, I think about who's going to pack the club, who's a different group of fans, because you truly can't, you know, people aren't going to come to any venue to see a band more than a couple times a month. And if you book, go to the same well over and over again, twice a week, mm -hmm. then eventually everyone's, you know, they love Antones, but hey, I don't want to go there right. <laughs> six times a month. I'm just, even if I love all these acts, I'm not going to go. So what I try to do and sort of has, as the booking philosophy has evolved over the years is kind of, you know, w think about that. Think about who's going to pack the joint on the weekends. If a roadshow needs to come in and maybe knock out one of our weeklies during the week, well, you know, hey, all, all of those guys are cool. Like, hey, you know, you'll be back next week, but we have right. a chance to do something cool in here. There's a big show coming through. And then a few times a month, two or three times a month, way more than that in July because we're celebrating our anniversary. But, mm -hmm. you know, do something that I, as the big music nerd, get really excited about. And I know that people who are really into Antones or in the music or who, who, you know, and that's stuff that the Draft House does too. You know, right, they, right, <laughs> right. Great they, parallel they there. They do some really deep stuff for the Tarantino Fest, or I know that doesn't happen anymore, but, you know, show that behind it you, you really care and you know and like, hey, yeah, we did something a little different, but, oh, my God, can you believe that they're doing four nights with Lazy Lester or something like that? You know, mm -hmm. that, that's – you've got to keep your head in that space, but you also have to keep finding new people to come here. To, to me, what makes – um, a club interesting or a theater a particular theater house interesting is when they kind of have that vantage point like you know they have credibility in something some vantage point mm -hmm. and you can venture out beyond that but you've got to maintain that kind of credibility from that from that vantage point because that that's what gives you like the perspective um, you know Antones the classic genres of Antones are blues, soul, R&B, funk, Zydeco, brass band. Well, that's a lot right there. And then if you think about all these genres that are inspired by that, mm -hmm. um, you know, that touches all just, you know, almost everything. Um, so I don't really see it as a departure so much as just a translation into, you know, we're connecting back with the roots and the origin of these genres, but we're also open take kind of embracing the future you know open arms and the demographic and age group and everything that comes with that um so well can you can you speak to the tradition of blue monday and what it meant for for cliff and what it means to the to the venue today yeah well uh blue monday i don't know if, how early they started it i think probably in 75 but it's been held down by different kind of luminaries over the years but the longest by far was Derek O'Brien who's sort of the his calling card is being the house guitar player of Antones and um, you know Blue Monday back in the 70s and in the 80s you look at those calendars they would um, be acts who um, went on to greater success or greater renown and things like that but you know Blue Monday is a fast domino song and um, it I don't know I, I guess it's it be Larry Monroe had the Blue Monday show and things like that, but um, in terms of Antones, it w it meant just every week a great blues band, and, and you know it was the 
most well-known uh, of all the residencies in terms of not being about the artist so much is just the night and the club. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I remember meeting someone, you know, there was a time on Lavaca where it was Blue Tuesday, like because mm. they had some big <laughs> country residency or something that was happening on Mondays. And there was like a year and a half where Derek and the guys played on Tuesdays. And I remember meeting some guy who was like, oh man, I love Antones, you know, Blue Tuesday. And I'm like, man, you you lived in Austin in 2000. <laughs> you know the range <laughs> this time, but if you know anything about this stuff, you know that, you know, but any, I, I digress. But, you know, it, it's important to us. Um, we get people from the sort of different farm teams of Antone's uh, musicians to always play. Derek is here most Mondays uh, holding it down, putting a band together with some old timers. Mm -hmm. uh, I say that in the term of like, baseball you know baseball players old like it's a good thing not like old, you know yeah, term of endearment. Old, yeah you know yeah. like the, the guys who really know their way around right. it, and then maybe some young guys like Eve will do them or Johnny Bradley or Keller Brothers and stuff and so it's it's a good if you want to come here for the first time it's a good way to see a little bit of now a little bit of the um, old days and kind of different musicians uh, joining on stage and kind of playing off each other oh dope yeah, yeah that's why well when you book I just I love hearing about how people book and the, the philosophy around that. So during the week, is that mostly residencies? While the weekend, you're always trying to book something from out of town or something different and new? Like, what's the philosophy around that? Yeah, that's right. I, I look at the um, weekends first. You know, we need firepower on Fridays and Saturdays for sure. We, need, right. um, we can't really have duds on those. So those kind of fill up the farthest out, mo almost always with road shows or with people who play here occasionally, but we know can can pack the place and right everybody has through the rest of the week we have an early and a late show you know mm -hmm. sunday through thursday happy hour and a night show that or you know one doors at five we have happy hour from five to seven here the music starts at eight six thirty and runs from till about nine six thirty till about nine and then late show from ten to one mm -hmm. um and those people kind of have those penciled in indefinitely Mm -hmm. If something comes along that we just can't say no to, there's a big road show coming through that we've got to do. Like I said, right. they'll I'm skip a week. It. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we try to be all these things at once. I mean, in a perfect world, we could just have our residencies and just have Friday and Saturday. And for the first six months or so, that's what we did. But, you know, it's it, not how people tour. Yeah. <laughs> people, <laughs> people landed Houston and Dallas on Friday and Saturday. Yeah. And they really want to play here on a Sunday. You know, I, I wouldn't have my job for very long if I started turning <laughs> down those things because you know ultimately a really good month is I look at okay we represented a lot of our loc our locals everyone was happy they got to play here three or four times you know mm -hmm. we had some crazy pops during the week because this happened and this happened and then my weekend shows delivered as well you know and, and it's all a big mix of all that yeah you, you always want to be I think the balance in again club booking not necessarily just venue booking where you know another thing about venue booking and not everybody would agree with this but venue booking if you don't have a good show you're just not you just don't open that night you know that's that's a lot of venues are not open every single night right right um as a club you don't have the luxury of doing that mm -hmm. you know because you're making a statement saying no we're gonna have music every single night so if you if you go too heavy on just all the residencies all the local stuff um all the blues, blues and roots genres and whatever well eventually that might get monotonous or you might you know that 
that might kind of get stale or whatever. Right, right. Um, if you just do uh, the road shows, then you know on a night when you don't have one, nobody's no, nobody's showing up right. because they don't. There's no baseline. Yeah. So I always think of it as you want to create this robust kind of foundation. Um, so that if the road shows just go away or, you know, something, you know, uh, you're not, you, you've still got, you've, you've got this right, you platform that you've built. So you, it, it, that really is more important. I mean, first, and it's also harder to do, but you build that base of people that are loyal to your brand, loyal to the experience, both musicians and customers alike. Um, and then I just think of it as sprinkling. You just sprinkle the little accents on and find where you can kind of <laughs> put a little here and a little bit. You're not so much where the so cake implodes. Picture Zach in the lab just. <laughs> yeah, not so much. I see to that meme. Yeah, that meme <laughs> with the salt. <laughs> I was going to say, just look at our calendar in August for uh, when all the road shows go away because, you know, nobody tours in August. So yeah. <laughs> if you want to see what it looks like week in, week out, you know, that's the baseline. We'll we'll have a hell of a lot of residencies in August because pe people aren't really touring, but, you know, March, April, May, September, October. If and they so are yeah. touring, they're going places where it's not 104 degrees. Yeah, right. <laughs> Pretty I much. Blame them. Can't blame them. I have one more question from before we close okay, out. Okay, go ahead. And, um, you know, we, we do a lot of coverage, and we have some employees here from, like, South by and other events like that. I haven't seen Anton's as a venue space, except for really during South by. Is there any other times? And maybe even speak to a little bit of the craziness of South by and just what y'all do around that. So he doesn't are, sleep. Are we, using my, <laughs> are we using my definition of venue or what do you what do you mean by you don't normally see it as, as a it, venue? Well, I mean, someone when you're not booking the shows, someone else is renting out the venue Got and it. bringing it in. Uh, South by is one of the only times. Yeah, that we collaborate with partners like we basically partner with um, other brands. And that's pretty common for uh, both clubs and venues in Austin during yeah. that time. Um, South by is its own, its own paradigm. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's own you, you want to be, you, you want to, I mean, I've said, uh, for a while, you know, it's, it is just two weeks of the year. And so you, I would never, I don't, I would never want to build a business model too much around, around just that. two weeks of the year. Um, you know, Antones is certainly focused on that other 50 weeks of the year in terms of what we're doing with the Antones legacy and what we're providing to the Austin music economy and all that. But when, if, if you can ca have your cake and eat it too, <laughs> you do that 50 weeks of the year. And then for the other two weeks, you say, okay, if we're going to do South by, we might as well do it all the way. Right. And we certainly took that into account building out this space. We wanted it to be something that would be very accommodating and, and attractive to those types of partners. And so right. far that's, that's worked for us. Um, you know, they end up, they usually have bigger budgets than we do too. So right. they get out. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we don't complain. Like they get some awesome acts in here that we otherwise wouldn't get to have in the door. So, so far it's been a total win-win for us. Good. Great. So Any other partnerships with in Austin? I mean, y'all don't, don't partner with ACL or anybody like that as well. Do you? Well, uh, I mean, different promoters put on shows here. C3 puts shows oh, okay, in. Okay, so they yeah, do. Yeah. Mohawk yeah. puts shows in. Okay, Marshall Graham. Marshall yeah, Marshall Marshall stuff yep. on the way. Good. Um, Good to know. We, you know, Moon Tower Comedy Festival, we were a venue for two nights this year. So ah. we Hell want yeah. to, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in an effort to bring in diverse programming or just, you know, what's important is artists that have a fan base that will follow them. You know, you can't. Um, 
expect Antones to be full by people who just want to go to Antones all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And certainly making ourselves accessible to these other promoters has brought a hell of a lot of people in here that we would not have brought in otherwise. And we're really grateful for that. And I think we work really hard to stay competitive and to stay accessible and, and to keep that flowing because right. that, um, that brings a ton of people. And then maybe when they walk in, they see the pictures on the wall and they go home and, and think about it. Maybe when come back uh, some other time just to see what we're up to on our own. But we, right. we're, we're equal, you know, pl open playing field for all kind of promoters. I had my party our, here. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> we are, you know, and that's, uh, well, another thing that we felt like, you know, Antones needed to do in this, in the new kind of landscape is really be a community space of sorts. Yeah. Um, because the old versions of Antones were always that. So we work with a lot of um, nonprofits. We work with a lot of uh, individual folks um, doing art exhibits and mm -hmm. things. Like yep. Shaka's. Um, yeah. yeah. And of course, like, back saying with feedback we're happy to have here yeah. we we knew um like we wanted to be able to say yes to as many things as possible which is why this upstairs is so great because we don't have to displace the down the, the consistency of the downstairs right, music right. to do all that stuff um but i do want to uh use this as an opportunity to give a little shout out about the 42nd anniversary that's coming up in please July. Do. The next thing, yeah. please do um, because we're working with some really cool partners on that. Planet K is our presenting sponsorship. So we're really excited um, and going to be doing some cool things with them. Um, also, we're uh, two of our supporting partners for the anniversary are Ticketfly, who's our mm -hmm. ticketing platform, and also the Weston Hotel across the street, who's been totally awesome, awesome to us. Um, just nothing better than being right across the street from a busy hotel. So. <laughs> That's true. Um, so yeah. I want to plug for the 42nd that's coming yeah, out? Yeah, some I mean the, the the Gary show is sold out already. But there's mm -hmm. other bands you want to you want to plug? Yeah, opening night will be Friday, June the 30th. Uh, and speaking of all the young and the old school or all that stuff that we talk about, it's the Peterson Brothers with CJ Chenier. so Love the Peterson the Brothers. The son man. of the guy who opened the first place who also opened our place and an amazing artist in his own right, CJ Chenier, will headline or he plays second but the peterson brothers of course who have played antones a lot over their you know short times on this earth <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll kick it off and then um the next night we're doing upstairs we'll have uh, margaret moser's robert johnson exhibit that they're bringing up from text pop oh. in san antonio yeah and uh, i've got an artist from uh, bentonia mississippi jimmy duck holmes is going to play the event up here and then open for ian moore downstairs um, the next weekend, we've got Lazy Lester uh, with a bunch of great Louisiana artists. I'm going to be playing guitar with a swamp uh -oh. pop singer named uh, T.K. Hewlin, uh, putting the band together for that. So still booking, still playing all at the same time. And the next night, we've got a uh, tribute to James Cotton and Muddy Waters. Uh. Uh, Cotton lived here for a long time, was one of the uh, greatest harmonica players ever, if not the greatest, and played a Muddy Waters band and a lot of the old gang who used to play Antones and Friends of Cottons and, and people who were in Muddy's band mm -hmm. um, will be on that show, which should be real special. Uh, Rick McNulty is doing his uh, Saturday night show live from Big Henry's that night, Ooh, and we'll be interviewing yeah. these musicians while they, he plays records that they played on and stuff, so that'll be real cool. And then it just goes on, on and on for there. We have uh, Jimmy Vaughn playing on mm -hmm. the official anniversary date. We have Bob Schneider playing here. 
for the first time with his full band. And of course, many people's introduction to Antones on Lavaca was seeing Bob and the Scabs and various incarnations. And we just have a lot of cool stuff. I mean, it's the time C. where Day every Chenier. night. CJ Chenier is coming back. Yep. Every yeah. every night it's it's, it's uh, Antones it, up and down. It's pretty it's much like all of July, like like two thirds through July, right? That's right. Yeah, it's it's technically June thirtieth through July twenty second. I mean, some of our regular programming will happen throughout there, but between uh, July the sixth and the fifteenth, there's something big here every single night. Awesome, and a lot man. of really good opportunities. Congratulations! Yes, congratulations to what y'all have done here and Seriously. carry the legacy. Can you talk about the, the foundation before before we leave? Yes, um, the Clifford Antone Foundation. I, uh, a few years ago, got involved with Help Clifford Help Kids, which is an annual gala that benefits American Youth Works. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clifford started that 16 years ago now. And um, one of the things that we realized is, you know, 16 years ago, that, that organization was much smaller on its trajectory. And while we want to continue that tradition, we also wanted to create a vehicle that could go plant other seeds uh, so that 16 years from now, there's more versions of that. So uh, the Clifford Antone Foundation is two things. It is one part mini venture philanthropy fund. Um, we're a membership-based organization, so everybody gives either quarterly or membership or annual membership dues. And then uh, we take that money and basically make strategic donations to existing music charities that are already pursuing our mission objectives, which are investing in the future and honoring the past. We feel like that was Clifford's approach to it. So we work with several organizations that are working with the youth and usually with music being uh, a part of the curriculum and and part of the framework for the good that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And then we also work with charities that work with elder musicians and helping uh, make sure they're taken care of and have access to, uh, you know, medicine and care and or getting a instrument repaired or whatever mm-hmm. they need. Um, and then the second piece of it, of the Clifford Antone Foundation, is we say we're a, a cultural preservation society, and that's the fun part. Um, we do a couple shows a year for our members, one in the s- fall, one in the spring, where we bring a legacy act, somebody that uh, has historic ties to Clifford and Antones and Austin, you know, or, or some combination of those. And we get our member base in there to, en- to enjoy that and be a part of that, which stretches a pretty wide span age-wise. So again, that was something that uh, Clifford did by getting the young folks and the old folks together and using mu- music as this conduit to kind of create this yeah. feedback loop between the two generations. That's, in doing that, he was literally passing on and preserving the culture. So, um, so far so good with that. We're up to uh, just about 200 members, a little over 200 members, and we've only haven't haven't even been. I guess it's been just over a year because we actually launched on June 9th of 2016. So that's been yep. really exciting. Congratulations! And you guys are killing doing, it. Look forward to doing more things. In fact, we will very soon be announcing, and I think we can go ahead and maybe announce exclusive, 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 exclusive that. In October, we're going to be having Booker T uh, here at the club. Thanks to Zach for what? lining that up. Seriously? Um, Booker T Jones playing 
Green onions on the Antone's house organ. <laughs> so, <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Cool as, there's so, some, a few things cooler than that. <laughs> so yeah, if you're um, if you're interested in learning more about the Clifford Antone Foundation and how you could could become a member, you can go to cliffordantonefoundation.org.org and learn more. And uh, you can sign up, become a member right there on the website, and come to the show in October. Sweet. What's, what's your social medias? Um, Clifford Antone Foundation. And for Antones, it's just Antones. Antonesnightclub.com is the main website. Mm-hmm. Check out the lineup. You can get your tickets right now. 42nd anniversary in July, starting on the 30th, right? You said? Yep, it's next right. Friday. Congratulations, guys. Seriously, kill Thanks. it. I love these shows because we don't have to ask much and to get to talk. <laughs> I love Just story it. after story. Yeah, that was easy on our side. I wasn't able to time it, but I think it's been two hours easily. I don't know. <laughs> It'll be a long show. We won't cut it because there's so much, so many gems in here that uh, you know that that are worth it. I really appreciate you guys. Um, one last thing I want to note: today is kind of a sad day. Uh, I'm a big hip hop fan, as you guys know, and we just lost Prodigy from Mob Deep, mm-hmm. uh, 40 second, uh, 42 years old. He had sickle cell since birth, and um, Mob Deep really had it really hit home because they, one, I was the first city I ever bought as a teenager in France, and they taught me English. When I say that I learned English listening to hip hop, like Mob Deep was like my my. No dictionary, my everything. So just learn all these words by heart. So uh, when I found out that uh, P died today, really, really hit me. So rest in that. peace. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, rest and in very peace, influential Ray. to a lot of the French hip hop stuff, like Passy. Oh yeah, oh yeah. In France, we love, we love Mob Deep. Yeah, from Passy to uh, uh, Ministère Amer, I am. I mean, all the all the DJs in France and the artists will tell you that Mob Deep was like up there, as far as you know production and lyrics and uh, just loved it so sad why day. it's all the more important to see the artists yes I'm glad can. I got to see I got to see him at South by and we got to interview them actually for feedback hey a few um, years ago another well I'm, I'm processing that because I, I I was a big fan as well but um, we have been doing some cool hip-hop shows we've got Raekwon coming yes. oh I didn't know that yeah the the, the wild the wild album dropped uh, a few weeks ago or a few months ago and um, I'm looking forward to that I would be front and center we had cool Keith <laughs> down a few months ago yep. far side so to me you know that type of hip-hop to me is just an extension of the roots music mm-hmm. that love know, it Love it, love it. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Shout out to Slab. Shout out to Heard Presents. Make sure you get your ticket. Check out the, their lineup. Go get yourself some barbecue. Thank, thank you, you so much, fellas. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you Support for tuning music. in. Support music. Tip your bartender. Tip the band. Opens, Come to Antone's. Open seven days a week. The record store is open at noon every day. You can get beers down there. You can uh, peruse through one of the most tightly curated selections of R&B, soul, Funk, blues, Zydeco vinyl, curated by Noel Wagner out of New Orleans. Uh, and then here at the club, doing two shows a night, seven days a week. We're open till 2 a.m., seven days a week. We do not stop. Nope. Keeping the blues alive. No Come days off. Thank you for tuning in. Follow the feedback everywhere on social media. And we'll talk to you next time. Goodbye, world. Ciao, ciao.